Welcome to the Ready, Set, Writ edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. You might not have expected to hear my voice back in your ears so soon, but both across Canada and here at Navigator, we are buckling in for this year's summer election. And as the campaigns get underway, Navigator will be providing insights and opinions to the day's news on our brand new election dashboard, available at navltd.com. In today's very special edition of Political Traction, I sat down with colleagues on both sides of the aisle to hear more about how the parties are preparing for an unprecedented pandemic or post-pandemic campaign. This is Political Traction. Welcome back to a very special episode of Political Traction, where we'll be covering the election throughout, um, you know, this this exciting next five, six weeks, we'll find out soon. Um, with me, I have some uh, some incredible insiders. My colleague, Claire Michael, who's an associate principal at Navigator. She worked for Premier Doug Ford and is about to be on her way into the Aaron O'Toole campaign, um, in the central campaign in the war room. My colleague, Philippe Gervais, who's a managing principal. He's a veteran of many a campaign, both in Canada and the U.S., um, and is, is incredibly knowledgeable of all things Quebec. And my colleague, Matt Barnes, senior consultant, he worked for Minister Morneau in Freeland and is about to go into campaign manage for Marcy Ian in Toronto Centre. Thank you all three for coming on the show today. Great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah. Great to be here. Awesome. All right. So it's an election that nobody wants, but is inevitable. Um, <laughs> uh, given, you know, all of the sort of theatrics we've seen in advance of the red dropping, what do we, I want to ask all of you what we need from each party leader. And I understand you're gonna have like your partisan hats on a little bit, but I would, you know, welcome you to to dock them a bit and give us some of the inside stuff. Maybe uh, I'll go to you first, Philippe. Um, what do you think that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau needs to do given he's coming in so high in the polls to kind of clinch this deal in the next couple of weeks? At this point, he, need, he needs to basically not lose. Um, if he, <laughs> but, but, but I'm saying, I mean, basically he, he, depending on which poll you're, you're, you're looking at, usually governments in, in power will lose one or two points if they're going to be reelected. And if they lose more than that, they usually lose the election, right? That's a change election. So he needs to basically, uh, just stay the course, not make any mistakes, um, you know, his his best his best bet is to we get a, a sort of a fourth wave and that just minimizes touring and events and, you know, again, minimizes the chances of him, uh, you know, tripping up. So he really needs just to stay very calm, very cool um, and very uh, safe campaign for now. Uh, Matt, given you are um, part of the, the liberal, big liberal machine, um, do you kind of agree with that assessment that you guys just need to play it safe? I mean, one of the things I think that does, that the Prime Minister has an advantage over um, the other leaders is how great he is at events, is how much momentum we see when he does those traditional rallies, which is why I kind of expect to see a little bit more of that from him, COVID aside, than maybe from an O'Toole. Um, and I mean, Jugmeet scene, we'll see. So what do you, what do you think we're going to see from your leader in the coming weeks? Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with Philippe that uh, we certainly need to play it safe. Uh, the prime minister has the advantage of being pretty tested at running elections now, more so than the other leaders, and uh, has certainly not been um, 
uh, resistant to slip-ups in previous elections. As, as we know from 2019, there were a lot of kind of mid-campaign gaps. Uh, hopefully, he's been through most of those. As you say, he's very, very charismatic and personable, um, more so than at least some of the other leaders, which, which helps. Um, we always say that the prime minister is best when he's in front of people. He, he has a natural ability to connect with people. So he, he does excel on the campaign trail. I think what people are looking to see from the prime minister and from the Liberal Party is uh, a plan to continue building on the things they promised to do in 2019 that, that largely got interrupted due to COVID-19, some of the new items as well. Um, and I, I'd be very surprised if we don't spend uh, a lot of time uh, talking about uh, the prime minister and the government's performance um, throughout the pandemic as well. Yes, he certainly has performed <laughs> in certain ways. Uh, Claire, do you see any, you know, any weaknesses in the PM um, that your your campaign's going to go after? I'm sure you do. Um, but what do you think? If you were on Team Trudeau, what would you have them do? Yeah, I think this is actually the worst possible time to call an election, just as uh, various provinces and jurisdictions around the world are, are uh, dealing with the fourth wave. So, you know, it, it's not an ideal time to be playing politics. Um, if the Liberals think that this is going to be a victory lap around, you know, how they handled the pandemic, they're in for a surprise and that that plan could easily blackfire if, if we're dealing with a fourth wave of the pandemic and, uh, and, and aren't frankly ready, ready to address it. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, you got, got a response I, to that? I'm not surprised. Yeah, because uh, I think Aaron O'Toole has uh, very recently made it clear he doesn't think this is the right time to call an election, which I think is an easy perspective to take if you're Aaron O'Toole and you're seeing your polling numbers. Um, but for anyone who's, who has the burden of having to watch anything in the House of Commons, you, you'd see that they're not acting like a party or they weren't acting like a party that was afraid to go to the polls. They shot down every confidence vote or, or voted um, against the government in every confidence vote they could. They slowed down um, uh, benefits to address the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, for, for a party that suddenly believes that we shouldn't be calling uh, an election, they, they've been doing everything they could over the last six months to, to try to poke the beast, so to speak. So, so Matt, I'm going to call um, bullshit on that one and just ask you, give me, uh, give me a, a piece of legislation that hasn't made it through this parliament, and that's why it's so dysfunctional. Because, like, they're the official opposition. Their entire job is to oppose your confidence motions. Like, if the conservatives were voting with the liberals on, like, major pieces of legislation, I would be kind of questioning if they were doing their job. So can you name one thing that hasn't, uh, hasn't made it through that, that's a big issue for Canadians? Well, I, I think a lot of the things went to the Senate a lot later than than they should have. Obviously, um, the conversion therapy legislation, uh, Bill C-10. Uh, but importantly, I think... And the Both legislations from, that were incredibly problematically written, right? Well, from your perspective, perhaps. But I, I'd say specifically the one that like I had to, to pay a lot of attention to was the Budget Implementation Act, which mm. it's one thing to oppose it. Of course, they have to oppose it. You're right. Uh, it's another to, to delay it at every opportunity and make sure the support isn't getting out there to make the government look as bad as possible. And, you know, th th there's a couple factors. And for me, and one factor that's not talked about enough in terms of why the Liberals should call an election is 
that which hopefully everyone here can agree with is they're kind of governing without a mandate like everything they ran on in 2019 is a bit moot at this point given we completely changed course due to the pandemic so I mean, for, for them not to be able to do the things they want to do, A, because conservatives are more than just opposing, they're filibustering, and B, because they don't actually really have a mandate from the Canadian public to do it, um, I think is good enough reason. There we go. Uh, we saw in the lead up to this week, um, we saw the Prime Minister in Quebec. Uh, he announced, well, basically a free check to Quebec for childcare money. Um, Legault, very interestingly, big-footed that with an announcement about vaccine passports. Um, so he said, thank you for your money, but I'm gonna do something much more newsworthy today, which I thought was a really interesting play. But Philippe, um, you know, for those that have been watching Quebec closely, we haven't really seen the block, you know, decrease in their, you know, while they only, for example, represent like, you know, less than I think 19% of the, uh, uh, sorry, they're at 6% now, like nationally in theory, they're a huge factor in Quebec, right? When they actually keep those votes away from the liberals, which is what gives them the keys to the, majority government. So can you give us just like a bird's eye view of what's happening in Quebec, what the leaders need to do in Quebec um, in order to succeed? Well, I mean, all three have got to look at, at where their battleground, what the battleground really is. And basically that is mostly the rural areas between Quebec City and Montreal along, on both sides of the St. Lawrence. So that's where there's a lot of seats. That's where a lot of seats are up for grabs. Uh, the Liberals will maintain their power base in Montreal and and, if, and a few writings outside of that, the Utuash, Sherbrooke area, where they've always had a strong standing. Uh, even even when Mulroney won those huge majorities, they would still hang on to those seats. So those are the very safe seats for liberals. They've got to go outside of the island of Montreal and really start getting into rural Quebec. Um, and for the conservatives, it's exactly the same thing. They've got their little, uh, you know, their, their dozen or so MPs in around the Quebec City area. They need to blow it outside of that. Uh, and the bloc basically needs to hang on to because they own the rest of the province. Uh, they need to hang on to to where they to where they are and try to grow into either Quebec City or Montreal. So it's really um, for both the major parties to have a chance of forming government. It's really looking at those seats between Quebec City and Montreal. Uh, that's that's where the battleground will be. That's where you need to win, and that's also a difficulty uh, because most of the elect, you know, the typical profile for for an elector in that area is francophone rural, um, and French rural electors have have shied away, mostly shied away, in the last thirty years. Uh, from the Liberal Party. There has been some times where they've kind of ventured with the Liberals, but uh, they're finicky. Uh, I don't think at this point they have any knowledge of, uh, of O'Toole. So carte blanche for him, will he be able to connect with those electors? Uh, he does speak French a little bit better than, than, than Sheer, but will he be natural in debates? Uh, that will be difficult for, that will be his difficulty. And for Yves-François Blanchet, the leader of the bloc, that's that's just a given for him. Uh, you know, it's a defensive move for him if he if he wants to if he wants to play there, and it's easy for him to get those votes. Right, their strategy has always been very Quebec centric, very geared towards those electors, and they've always done fairly well in the last thirty or forty years in in those in those uh, writings. Do you think the NDP should just write off Quebec entirely and just focus only on the West? Like, do they have a they have a snowball's chance and you know where to to get any extra seats there? No, I don't think so. Um, what you need to understand, what you need to, what people need to understand is is that there's 
there's always a cultural side to uh, the francophone vote in Quebec. Uh, you need to be able to speak the language. You need to be able to connect with, uh, with the culture there. So as an example, uh, when Jack Clayton had the orange wave in Quebec, his English wasn't perfect, but he could connect. He was connecting. He was, he was very colloquial in, in the French, in the somewhat broken French that he spoke. It was pretty good, but not perfect. But he was very colloquial. He really understood that culture. He really meshed with that culture, which is why he won, uh, he won all those seats. Um, for Trudeau, it's always been a little bit more difficult to do that. There's history there. There's, there's Liberal Party history. And uh, so that's really what you need to do, right? And that's where Yves Blanchet, Yves-François Blanchet does so well because he obviously connects very well with that culture. I wanna pick up on something that Philippe just said for, for the rest of the panel here. And that he said, you know, Aaron O'Toole is a bit of a blank slate. Um, and I think we've all seen, you know, broadly he has yet to sort of really punch through with the you know, Joe public, as you would say about who he is and what, what he's done, their campaign, um, that I've talked to, and I mean, Claire, I would really invite you to pop in on this in a second, um, has said that they're very, like, they're quite confident about um, Aaron's prospects in this election campaign, that the fact that um, they're going to do a lot of stuff with digital, um, very targeted, as opposed to what you'd see as like more broad, um, traditional campaign events, and they expect to use that to really connect with, uh, with voters in a very specific and targeted way. But you know, he still isn't well known. And part of that is a pandemic. Part of that is being the opposition leader. I mean, it's been a tough slob for, for, uh, for um, Aaron to so far. So what do we think that he needs to do to be successful? And I say this knowing that the poll tracker right now has the chance of the Conservatives winning the most seats at 8%. So even uh, the public, the polling isn't great. Um, the media, the Liberals have lowered expectations to the point where I think if he showed up with pants on, um, it would be a win. So maybe Claire to you first, what do you think you're, go you're going in the central campaign? I know you can't give us state secrets, but what do you think Aaron needs to do? And what do you, what should we expect from him? Absolutely. And I think here campaigns do matter. I'm, and I'm going to beat that with the dead horse just because, you know, in 2015, everyone thought Thomas Mulcair was mar marching into a, a majority government and that simply wasn't the case. Um, I think Aaron does really well with the traditional conservative uh, red meat issues, you know, job creation, small business, uh, helping small business movement hit really hard during the pandemic. But I think where Aaron's strengths also lie and is in reading the country and understanding that we need to build, you know, domestic vaccine capacity, understanding that, you know, healthcare used to be an equal partnership in this country. And, and now it's, it's a fraction of what it was. And, and that's an issue that's close to Premier Legault as well and that healthcare has been underfunded for a really long time and we've also seen a federal government that has frankly washed its hands of, of long-term care and said you know this is a provincial responsibility where we want nothing to do with it or we're not prepared to step up in the way that the provinces expect us to and i think that that sort of thinking is wrong when um, there are a number of levers available to the federal government uh, to make a difference on that file you know whether it's uh it's immigration or, or working working with the provinces on on PP procurement and other and other areas. So that's and that's great from a policy perspective, but how nobody knows who he is. So like how are you going to, I mean, you're gonna have the benefit of a national campaign and a whole bunch of media, but are we gonna see like, you know, like hell of a guy, Aaron O'Toole? We're we gonna see like policy wonk Aaron O'Toole. Like what are the stuff you're going to do? Because you're I mean, Justin, the Prime Minister is a celebrity. I mean, he's a, you know, he's not my cup of tea as folks that listen to the podcast will know, but um, you know, he's formidable. And I think, you know, to, which we as conservatives, I think, know. So how, how is 
Aaron Tool going to overcome what has been, I think, a, a bit of a, a lackluster start so far, some of which is his fault, some of which is not been? I think as we're planning for the future of this country, you know, do you really want a celebrity doing the long-term thinking for our country, or do you want someone who's a working-class guy from Durham? I say that as someone from Oshawa fully, <laughs> that's my bias, but um, I do think that um, I, I think families are looking for someone who has a plan, who has a detailed plan for how they're they're going to make a living in the, in the future and, and someone who's going to protect the interests of this country, who's, who's going to make life more affordable and make sure that they're not just going back to their old jobs, but they're going back to better jobs and that the skills training and, and the supports are there uh, that incentivize employers to create those jobs that we need. So that's the frame we can expect. Go, go ahead, Philippe, you're going to jump in there. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, and, and what, what Aaron O'Toole needs to do also is, and, and he's lucky. I mean, he is, in some in some instances, you know, the fact that you're not known, you're coming in as a blank slate. So that that opens up a whole bunch of, of, of options for you in running your campaign. And I think he's already started putting, the few things that have kind of punched up a little bit is is he's, actually moving towards the center in terms of a lot of social, you know, and away from the social conservatives, which I think he needs to do to win uh, more seats in, in both Ontario and Quebec. And that's where he'll win more seats because there's not many gains to be done out West uh, for the conservatives. So being able to do, do these things, look at, you know, at least acknowledge that there is climate change is a thing. It does exist. And, and we need to have, a, you know, conservatives <laughs> need to have a plan to fight it. Right, which is which is a little bit different than, than some of the past leaders. So I think he's already set a couple of stones in place to be able to, to really take off from. Right, he's trying to build that base, but he's going to have to move fairly quickly. But again, he's got the advantage of being a blank slate, so he could surprise. If there is a surprise in this election, it won't come from Jack Meet Singh. Everybody knows who he is. It won't come from from Justin Trudeau. Everybody and their dog knows who he is. Uh, it could be from from uh, from uh, Aaron O'Toole, who again is starting from a blank slate. He could surprise. He could surprise. Matt, um, do you expect to be surprised? Are you guys worried, or is this sort of like when um, we were conservatives and ran election campaigns against like like Stefan Dion, and it was just like, okay, this will be <laughs> interesting. Uh, I think it's it's very it's very intentional that you're not seeing Aaron O'Toole's name mentioned in a lot of liberal communications. I think uh, the longer he remains an unknown factor to the general public, the better for the liberal camp. Um, so th there really is an opportunity in using that national platform and presenting himself to Canadians. Um, I, I disagree that the platform items he's putting forward and the policy initiatives are something that Canadians are going to resonate with or, or care with. I mean, especially as Philippe said, he's moved a lot more to the center. So in a lot of ways, his platform is, oh, I'm just just like the other guy with a twist, you know. So are, are people really going to be convinced that uh, Aaron O'Toole's Petro points where the more you burn, the more you earn is a better plan than getting your your pollution price rebate through your tax system. I, I frankly don't think Canadians are, are, are going to move the, the dial on that, but uh, he certainly does have, have an opportunity to connect with Canadians on a more personal level and, and use that story that, that Claire was mentioning about being a, a blue collar guy from uh, the GTA that, that people don't know yet. So it, it is an unknown factor. And I think um, he, he's got to, uh, to make the most of it in his kind of initial introduction to Canadians. And I think the Liberals have done an error in, in that strategy about not talking about Aaron O'Toole. Um, they had a chance to define who Aaron O'Toole was before he was known. 
And to Erin O'Toole's advantage, she walks into this campaign without being defined. Uh, so it's really up to him now to define himself and he'll have, you know, if elections are, are, are launched in a couple of days, he'll have 36 days to do that or so, right? So he has, that thing that puts him in an advantage. And, and going back to what you were saying, Amanda, about, about Stéphane Dion or, or, or Michael Ignatieff, when the Conservatives were in power, uh, those two individuals were clearly defined by the Conservatives. So by the time we got to the election, People knew that one was a nerd, the other one was a foreigner, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, I'm exaggerating, but I mean, that's what people, you know, were, were, were left with, with uh, in terms of image of those two guys going into the election. So let's talk NDP. Um, you know, they are, I think, a bit of a wild card this election. We've kind of said that we don't think they'll have a lot of chance in Quebec, but talking to NDP insiders, you know, I'm hearing they're quite bullish about their chances out west. Um, they feel competitive in the 401 corridor in southern Ontario, where they tend to battle it out with conservatives, um, which people forget. And then also they they actually feel pretty good about Alberta, which I think kind of interesting, right? Edmonton Center, possibly some seats in Calgary. Um, and part of that is due to the fact they have infrastructure there because of Rachel Notley that they didn't have before. Um, Jagmeet Singh also is this a second national campaign. And I think we all know from working with leaders that experience on a national campaign matters. He's also not facing the internal strife that we saw in the last campaign where folks were kind of openly boycotting him as we've seen with sort of Anne Paul and the Green Party. So do we do we think Jagmeet Singh has a has like a chance to do a little better this time or will he be lucky to kind of maintain his seats? Um, Matt, I'll go to you first because we haven't heard from you a little bit. And, love, and also the Liberals really tend to kind of bottle it out most with the uh, with the NDP. So what do you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm involved in a campaign in an urban area, which, yeah. which really means the NDP are on the top of uh, my radar, so to speak. Um, I think nationally, the Liberals obviously have to draw the contrast between the Conservatives and the Liberals in order to make Canadians think that's the choice. But if the NDP become a viable you know, leader in this election, they're really going to become a threat to, to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. And I think you look at some of the numbers of where Jagmeet Singh is seeing support. It's it's very significant in people under 30. It's very significant in women under 30. Uh, and these are key groups that, um, as we know, are what helped launch Justin Trudeau into his surprise majority in 2015. So he's, I think, it would be wrong to underestimate the sway that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP could have in this, this election. They're right to focus on where their um, key areas of support are and, and maybe uh, double down on, on new seats they think they can win rather than trying their best to hold on to or, or grab some in Quebec um, or, or other regions. But I, th I think they're, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with, and I think they could surprise a lot of people in this coming election. Claire, what do you uh, what do you, you make of this? I mean, for example, one of the things I saw is the NDP, they don't typically run pre-election ads. Um, they're running pre-red ads. They've been running pre-red, including during um, during uh, the Blue Jays game, which is not, you know, an audience, as, as Matt mentioned, they're, I mean, Blue Jays, I think, appealed under 30s, but women, under, it's not, to, they usually go to HGTV, right, not to uh, Sportsnet. So um, do we think that we'll see Jagmeet Singh sort of break out of his TikTok uh, Shell, or should he double down on that? And that's the key to victory for him. Yeah, it's really going back to my earlier point about how the Liberals think that they'll they'll win this uh, election on autopilot. The voters are on autopilot and, and will just vote Liberal again this time. I think 
where the weakness in that sort of thinking would be is that, you know, if, if voters think that way, if, if voters just think the liberals will win anyway, that allows them that that essentially wakes them up to saying, oh, well, maybe I should check out what's on offer. And, and they'll find that there's a number of choices. And I think that's where Jagmeet's um, opportunity is, is when these voters are looking around and, and trying to see what's on offer for this election. Now, speaking of that, we're, you know, the election is being called in August, which, you know, even getting clients to respond to me right now is a bit of a challenge. I don't know how we'll feel, how dialed in voters will be. So do we think, Philippe, do we think people are going to care um, or do we, we expect pretty low, are you expecting a low turnout in this election? Or do you think by September, everybody will have livened up to this circus and decide they really want to get out and vote? I don't remember an election where we started off where people were, the general population was excited and wanted an election. <laughs> I do not remember that election. It's, it probably was one at some point, way before we were all born. Um, people usually don't pay attention, but when it, when it comes to, when it comes to, to the campaign and then obviously media you know media put a lot of emphasis on that it, it's part it's part of the discourse it, it's, it becomes part of the landscape all of a sudden people start paying attention then you get to you know high moments like like debates and others and and obviously people start paying more attention um so i don't i again i think this is normal at this time of the uh, this time of the process people don't want election i again you've i've never seen a poll that's, that where people say we want election you know 80 percent. it's always you know we don't want we don't want to hear about politics we just go away let us have our, our summer let's let's play hockey whatever we do at the time of that time of the year um but we'll see i think we'll see people start concentrating that after on that after labor day all right, I have uh, two more questions and then I'm going to let you guys uh, get back to uh, your election planning and, and packing and traveling to uh, to campaigns. But um, before I get to a round robin question for all of you, I just wanted to uh, ask Matt real quick. So you're going in to manage Mercy Inn campaign in, in Toronto Centre. Um, not only are you facing the NDP, you're also facing uh, the leader of the Green Party, um, who has, uh, I think, had quite the rough ride from her party over the last few few weeks and over the last month and a bit. Um, that to me feels like a really interesting race and, and, and a race to watch. So for, for listeners today, um, you know, what, what should we expect from, uh, from Toronto Centre, which has been, I think, historically a very safe Liberal seat, but obviously hotly contested and Marcian is, of course, a star candidate. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't spill the trade secrets in case any of these people are are listening here. I tried. So, uh, no, but but like, I'm, what we're seeing nationally is the inner turmoil. Which, I mean, whether you think it's fair or not, I I, I personally think she probably deserved much more support and and, and yeah. you know didn't deserve kind of what she got uh, in any other party. The amount of leaking and, you know, party turmoil and even just, you know, um, lack of consensus um, resulting from an issue that isn't even core to the party's, uh, you know, mandate or, or beliefs is um, pretty disappointing to see, the, to see what they've done to her. Um, and nationally, uh, it's really decimated their chances of picking up or even holding on to seats, uh, at least now, as Claire mentioned earlier, campaigns matter. She could get get a refresh. Locally, uh, where I am, it's it's a bit of a different story, right? Because you have the usual um, might of a leadership candidate running in a campaign, and it's a leadership candidate who isn't too concerned about other seats. 
So she's going to spend all of her time and all of her party's resources trying to pick up that new seat in Toronto Centre, which in the by-election last year was uh, a fantastic turnout for the Green Party in a, they came second in a riding where they had historically finished last. Um, So being a leadership candidate in a riding does make a difference. It does matter. And and she's got a lot of resources to do it. I think locally, the, the importance for, for voters and in watching that race is, is are they going to vote for a local candidate, which we know is very rare, or are they going to vote for the government they want to see? Um, so that's, I guess, where my work is. <laughs> well, good, good luck, my friend. Uh, so last question, all of you, as mentioned by both, I think, Claire and, and Matt, campaigns matter, right? They really do. Uh, you know, incredible things can happen in campaigns. Um, governments can change. People can go from third to prime minister. Um, so what, if you had to say there's one thing that listeners should watch out for in the next couple of weeks, um, what would that be? And I'm going to go first to Philippe. Uh, I think what people want to, the one thing they need to look at is how well will Aaron O'Toole introduce himself to the general population or not? I think that'll be, that's really the, potentially the surprise factor or potentially the the most you know biggest chance of a trip up and and uh, going into oblivion and so that'll be the really I think the rest is is pretty much steady as she goes. Claire, what about you? I would watch the fourth wave very carefully and how it impacts Canada. Um, just coming from the premier's office, um, I know a lot of the political parties at the federal level right now have campaigns ready to go that are, are their visions for post-pandemic recovery. But you know how how this next wave impacts Canada is really going to define uh, how the political parties right now federally are going to pivot politically. All right, and Matt, you? I'm tightening my partisan hat here a little bit. I think people <laughs> uh, need, need to keep an eye out for, I mean, what they want to see over the next four years um, and what's at stake for them and their families over those four years. Uh, are they happy with the status quo and, and the things that have occurred under Justin Trudeau? Uh, has it made a difference for their family? Um, and are they willing to put at risk putting in charge a party who, you know, said they were against the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, said they were against support for families, um, and uh, and have shown no real commitment to addressing climate change. I think, obviously, there's a divergent point of view there, but um, I think people need to look ahead to the next four years in terms of what, what they want to see for them and their families. Yeah, I think for me, I'm going to be really interested to see how, the, and maybe this is a bit of an inside baseball sort of thing, um, but you know, just how much they use, the given Claire's thing, there might be a fourth wave. Um, you know, how are they using digital? How much are we using traditional media versus, you know, like non-traditional methods? I think the way we campaign is going to change dramatically over the course of this campaign and the next campaign. So it'll be really interesting for me to see who is front and center in that and who is kind of doing the more traditional methods. All right. Well, thank you so much for an amazing podcast Um, to Claire and Matt. I wish you all the best on your respective campaigns. We will miss you around the office, but we're excited to, uh, I wish success on both of you, weirdly or believe it or not, that is actually genuine. And uh, thank you, Philippe, so much for uh, for coming on to give us an insight into all things Quebec. And uh, I guess hopefully we'll come back to the pod a little later on in the campaign to, uh, to dissect how it all went down. I'll be available. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by Simon Redden, Hunter Nifton, John Gardner, Kimberly Drapak, and Carolyn Svonken. A very special thank you goes out to this week's insiders, Claire Michaels, Matthew Barnes, and Philippe Gervais. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tell your friends about Navigator's Election Centre. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Poly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.